0: Well, happy Resurrection Sunday. Uh, I'm thankful to be here with you today. Thank you for being here. We are in Acts chapter 13 today. So as you find your place, or you already have your place there, uh, let me uh, tell you that um, one of the purposes that I had in uh, going to India this past year was, as I've told you, to preach through the Old Testament. And in that process, I have the opportunity to help these pastors understand the context in which Christ is fulfilled in all the Scriptures. And that was new information to these brothers who were pastors of churches. Um, And so as we preach through the 39 books of the Old Testament... Every book that we got to, we wanted them to to grasp and understand and see very clearly the web or the the thread, as we might say, of redemption that runs through the Old Testament pointing to Christ. You might have heard people say that Jesus is the promise keeper. Matter of fact, uh, author and pastor Mark Dever Uh, summarized the the, the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament into two books, kind of books that are summary books, and he entitles them Promises Made for the Old Testament and Promises Kept for the New Testament. That's how you summarize the whole Bible. That God's promises were made throughout 39 books of the Old Testament and that in Jesus and then what follows, the promises we see are kept in Christ. So much so that we sing the hymn of 1886 written by Russell Kelso Carter, Standing on the Promises of Christ my King. Through eternal ages let his praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing, standing on the promises of God. With our time here today, I'd like to point us to the way in which Christ fulfills the promises of the Bible. So that we might see him as the glorified and risen Savior, the great Messiah who was promised, that was fulfilled in Him, in which he might br- so that He might bring redemption to His people. And so I'm going to do something that is frowned upon in churches as of late, and that is I'm going to preach someone else's sermon. It's not going to be a sermon that's written by just any man. It was written by the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 13, as he stands to proclaim the gospel in a sermon in a synagogue in the city of Antioch of Pisidia. And so in chapter 13, we see Paul setting out on his first missionary journey. And he and Barnabas arrive after uh, taking a few stops to a small area called Antioch of Pisidia. And this place was different from the Antioch that was known in the early church as kind of a hub of missions. This was a different place. Um, It is what we would now now know as modern-day Turkey. Um, It consisted of a variety of cultures like many did in that day. So you had uh, Jews there, you had Greeks um, and Gentiles that were fearing of God. And Paul, like always, would attend a synagogue. Uh, to do what we should all consider doing in our call in the, in the gospel, and that is proclaim the gospel to the lost. Paul knew, according to the structure of the synagogue that he would have an opportunity as a visiting Jew to sit in a synagogue and and, and, and be asked, does anybody would anybody like to stand and teach today? And Paul would use this opportunity to stand and proclaim the gospel. And so in Acts chapter 13, we see, starting in uh, verse 16, actually, through the end of the chapter, a sermon that Paul gives uh, to these people in Antioch. And in the midst of that, his purpose is my purpose. Okay, so it's not original to me, inspired by the Holy Spirit, directed by the Apostle Paul, to show these Jews... That all the promises that they had heard about the coming Messiah, all the promises that they had held on to with hope in the time of the intertestamental period, where prophets had not spoken from God, all these things had led to the point which Jesus comes onto the scene and is the great promise keeper. And this is who we worship as our Messiah and our Lord. We look back upon those promises So that every book of the Old Testament, every great story in Sunday school class, is not just an individual story, but it's an individual story that's a part of a grand story pointing to the Lord Jesus. And that's how we should see it. That all these stories of Noah and Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and and Esther and all these people, all of these stories are not individualistic on their own, they are part of a whole so that we can see the the woven tapestry of redemption that the Lord had begun before time began in His writing and planning and carrying forth of the great salvation for His people. And why did He do that? To bring great glory to His own name. And so as Paul and Barnabas stand to preach, or, or Paul particularly stands to preach, he invites the people to consider those promises, and to believe in Jesus Christ. So chiefly, we want to look at first the proclamation, Paul's proclamation of this promised Redeemer. You know, when we understand the promises that God has made, and we see time after time, 100%, without fail, that our God is a faithful and true God who always does what He says He's going to do, then we are filled with confidence that we can trust Him, that He is good, that no matter what circumstances we are in, we can rest upon the promises of God that He loves us, that He is working all things out for our good, even if we can't understand them and see them, that Jesus Christ is, who died upon the cross and rose from the grave, his very death and resurrection is proof that God is a trustworthy God and that we can believe in Him and that we can have confidence in Him and rest in Him in these days. This was Paul's message to them. And so he stands beginning in chapter 13, verse 16, addressing those people. Look at what he says in verse 16. Men of Israel, and you who fear God... From verses 16 down to verse 22, Paul begins to summarize the story of God's blessing whereby God was faithful to Israel as his people through the major different events in their lives. He wants them to acknowledge and see God was always at work behind the scenes. God was always bringing about his promises without failure. And he wants them to see that and acknowledge that what he has done for them, he has has brought to fulfillment in Jesus whom they had rejected, whom they had cast out, whom they had hung upon the cross, calling him a blasphemer, crucifying him like a criminal. And so he kind of begins to summarize this in verse 23 as he kind of wraps up his summary. From the descendants of this man, he writes, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. If you write in your Bibles or write on your notes, according to the promise, Paul will use that, not just in verse 23, but he will reference that again in verses 32 and 33. Look with me. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus as it also was written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul wants them to see with the reiteration of the same word over and over again, Jesus did not just not come, Jesus came as a part of the grand plan of God. And so what I'd like to do with you this morning as we begin is go a little different direction from Paul and and kind of focus on a few verses whereby Jesus fulfills the promise. For example, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. One of the very first promises that God was doing something for redemption. Why in Genesis chapter three, uh, chapter three, verse fifteen? Because in that chapter, where sin is acknowledged, where rebellion comes upon the scene, we need hope in that moment, so that we don't lose despair or fall into despair and lose hope. Jesus, in that moment, is revealed in Genesis chapter uh, three, verse fifteen. The promise is made, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This great promise of, of a Messiah who would come, a, a one who would crush the very head of the snake, who would gain victory over the efforts and the attacks of Satan himself, bringing victory for those who had fallen under his spell, who had fallen under his temptation and under the slavery of sin. Now, we don't understand exactly how that was communicated, but that began the thread of hope. That began the thread of hope, whereby Jesus was proclaimed in Genesis chapter 3. Then we move to Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abraham... I will bless you, he says. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, how will the families of the entire earth be blessed through Abraham? Well, ultimately, or, or specifically, we see that the, the, the way in which the people of, of, of Abraham's lineage the people of Israel would so glorify God and so reflect Him in holiness, then they ultimately would be this uh, reflection of God's glory and love in the world. So the nations that they came in contact with should have seen and experienced the love of God, the grace of God, that God had shown Israel, and that being reflected upon the people of Israel, that would be reflected upon the nations but we know that that didn't always happen, because what eventually happened, Israel just became like the nations. And so there had to be more. So we even read that promise to Abraham, and we long for something more, because ultimately the families of the earth can only be blessed in Jesus when He provides a salvation that extends to all the earth for those who would believe. Genesis chapter 17, again, God establishing the covenant with Abraham, telling him that your descendants after you throughout the generations, that would go, they would join with him in an everlasting covenant to be, God would be to them their God. That they would have a relationship, that they would have intimacy. And that intimacy and that relationship can, extends on to all people who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For Him to be our God is to to have ownership or relationship with Him. And how do we have ownership or relationship with God? How are we united with Him? The Bible teaches us that it's through Christ that we have that relationship. And finally, in Psalm 89, a psalm of a promise to King David, the promise that, that God would establish the descendants of David forever in his throne would be as the days of heaven. Well, how does David have an everlasting throne unless someone who sits upon the throne is an everlasting ruler? And therefore, the everlasting ruler that would sit on the everlasting throne of David had to be God in the flesh coming from the line of David, and yet living for all eternity, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the promises kept. Paul gives his own highlights, showing the redemption. We won't look at those. You can read this story later. But I want to focus on kind of the climax of this. Verses 28 through 31 Where Paul lays out for us then the revelation of Jesus Christ that we would call, and as Paul calls, the good news. Because God is a promise keeper and he fulfills all these things in Christ, then Paul says, let us then look at the one who has fulfilled these promises, let us look at the good news of the promise. This is what he calls it the good news of the promise. What is the good news? What is the gospel? Paul tells us. You need to understand, friend, what is the gospel? The gospel is not your testimony. The gospel is not what Jesus has done for you. Because that would just be good news to you, not good news to everyone. Everyone. The gospel is the very fact, the very reality, and the very history of what was accomplished and purposed in the person of Jesus Christ. So, I have five pillars of the gospel that you need to understand. And I wouldn't say you don't need to just understand it and you don't need to know it, you need to believe it. Number one, that he was the sinless Christ, that he was sinless. In verse 28, I'll start there. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. Now, we know most specifically that what Paul is referring to is that Jesus had no business being on the cross. He was hung between two criminals that deserved to be there. He was chosen instead of a murderer, Barabbas who should have been there in his place, but there Jesus is, the innocent rabbi, the innocent teacher, but more importantly, the innocent Son of God. He was sinless in every way. And we must understand this because we then can see the beauty of the cross, that in the cross, Jesus is hanging for our sin, not his own sin. In our guilt and shame, not in his own. And Jesus has to be sinless because if we deny the sinlessness of Christ, then we begin to deny the very fabric of what Jesus accomplished. Think about it. If we deny Jesus' sinlessness, we are then denying his deity. We're throwing away the virgin birth, we're throwing away the, the, the sinlessness of Christ, the perfection of Christ. Therefore, we are throwing away the idea that he is God because God cannot sin. But the Bible teaches us that he was innocent. He was the pure, spotless lamb that needed to be sacrificed for sin. And his very perfection, church, is necessary because he, in his sinlessness, was the sufficient sacrifice. For our sinfulness Because he was sinlessness Or because he had sinlessness He was the acceptable sacrifice for us God wasn't going to use someone that just had sinned less than us I don't need to find somebody that's just better than you Because when you're dying for a whole host of people that's going, someone that's going to face the eternal wrath of God upon himself for sinners, you can only have a pure and spotless sacrifice. And so this sinless Son of God who is executed upon the cross, there he's being executed as we looked at on Good Friday in our service, His sacrifice looks back to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament that required a spotless lamb. And it required a spotless lamb to be sacrificed on the very day of atonement on behalf of the people. And in God's providence that day, the 14th day of Nisan, was the Good Friday that Jesus would be sacrificed on the cross. So number one is the sinless Christ. Number two, the death of Christ. Verse 29 tells us they were putting him to death, that they, were asked, they asked Pilate to execute him and that they carried out all that was written of him. Jesus had to die. He didn't faint as some suggested only to be re- revived in the tomb. Medical experts who don't even believe in the gospel have studied the science of the crucifixion and they testify that the method of killing people on the cross never left anyone alive. Because if a person somehow did not die intentionally or immediately of asphyxiation, the soldiers would break the legs of the men so that they could not push up on the nails through their feet and therefore their lungs would not be able to get in the oxygen that they need and they would eventually suffocate and die a long, agonizing death. But here's the thing. The crucifixion did not kill Jesus. The Father killed Jesus. The Bible tells us That it was the very plan and purpose of God that Jesus Christ would come to die. Even Jesus himself recognized this. John chapter 10, speaking of the good shepherd, saying that he was the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do for his sheep? He lays down his life for them. And he says, because I lay down my life, I will take it up again. And nobody takes it from me. I lay it down on my own what? My own initiative. Jesus Christ willingly going to the cross for sinners, for his enemies. Church, how do you love your enemies? How do you love them? Jesus, he puts a heavy responsibility in front of us when he dies for his enemies. How do you love your enemies? Are you sacrificing yourself for them? It's difficult for us, church, to even speak well of enemies. And Jesus put his own life on the line for them. But Jesus was willing, as the purpose and the plan of God, to go and to die. In the great prophecy of Isaiah, we read that it was the Lord who was pleased to crush him putting him to grief it was it was he was pleased why because this was the way in which he had carried out his plan the father is always pleased in carrying out his plan why because it brings him glory the Bible, the phrase that circulates in good biblical theology is God is always for his own godness. He is always seeking his own glory. Not because he's some arrogant man, as we might be, but because he literally deserves that glory. He deserves everything, all the praise and honor from all the earth, for he is the creator and ruler of all. And so by pleasing to crush His Son may sound inhumane and unloving to us in our human fight-nightness, but the truth of the matter is when God carries forth His plans, He is pleased in carrying them forth, even crushing His own Son. So you have the death of Christ. He, he was sinless. He physically died Life left his body. Thirdly, he was buried. The Bible tells us they laid him in a tomb. Fulfilling another promise of the Messiah would be that Jesus the Messiah would suffer and die and that his burial would not reflect his death. Meaning that when the Jews saw someone crucified... There, the Word of God said that those who hung upon the tree were cursed. You were cursed if you hung upon a cross. God was cursing you. And there the Son of God is hanging upon a tree, cursed of God. Where does a cursed man get buried? Not in a grave. He gets burned in the ash heap outside the, the city. And yet, by the prophecy of God and the plan of God, a cursed man was put in a wealthy grave. The grave of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. It was like a a, a fragrance of God's mercy and grace of his own son, who he had just crushed to death, and yet honored him in the way in which he was buried. Jesus being buried in the tomb of a rich man not only was a grace of God, but it was a promise of God. Isaiah 53, 9. His grave was assigned with a wicked man, yet he was with a rich man in his death. We know that Jesus was in the grave for three days. When you consider the days counted as Friday, because he was put in the grave on a Friday... Saturday and then Sunday morning. That would have accounted for three days. Those three days is significant because it debunks any notion that Jesus never died. Jesus wasn't, you know, playing cards in the tomb after the coolness of the tomb revived him. Waiting it out for the guards to go to sleep so the disciples could come and steal his body. Even though the Jews tried to lie in such a way. No, Paul is giving the Jews in Antioch all the proofs necessary for them to believe that Jesus was sinless, that he died, that he was buried, and that finally he rose again. Number four, the resurrection of Christ. God raised him from the dead. Jesus came out of the tomb in a new glorified body. It was a body made and fit for heaven, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. But he wasn't just a spirit, it was a body. It was a body with physical properties. It was so much so that this morning I was reading the story in Matthew where Mary and the women literally clung to the feet of Jesus. They didn't like reach for his feet and, and miss as they passed through this apparition or spirit. No, they literally clung to his feet in a new resurrected body. And that gives us hope, right, church? As we consider our frailty, as we consider our weakness, as we consider our sickness and disease, that that glorified body is not only a a, a reflection of what God does by giving us new life, but it's a reflection of what God will give us in our resurrection when we trust in him. But in his resurrected state, rising from death, he proves that he is the victor. That death would not hold the Lord to any type of slavery. No one is the master over the Lord. The Lord is the master. Sin could not hold him. Death could not hold him. Satan could not tempt him. The resurrection proves that he is truly the warrior and the king that he was promised to be. And lastly, and we don't don't talk about this one as much, but an important aspect that Paul mentions, the sinlessness of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, but the witnesses of the risen Christ. That people saw Him. The Bible tells us that over 500 people for over 40 days Saw the risen Christ. They knew he died. You remember on the road to Emmaus, the disciples who were talking about it, and they meet Jesus and they don't know it's Jesus? And the two disciples are shocked that Jesus acts like he doesn't know what had happened to this man Jesus. They're like, You didn't hurt? You haven't heard about this? Because it was so well known, because Jesus was the troublemaker, he was the blasphemer. The crowds had gathered around before His crucifixion crying out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And now His disciples that He appeared to have been given confidence. They had all began to see the power of the resurrection manifested in the Lord and they became became the witnesses. And as Paul says, the witnesses in verse 31, the witnesses to the people. Now let me tell you something. You and I don't see the miracles like they saw the miracles. Okay? But I promise you that if you saw somebody rise from the dead, you could not hold it back. You'd be telling people. You would. This is what the very foundation of being a witness is. You are so transformed by some miraculous work that you have to tell somebody. This is the foundation of evangelism, church. That you are so transformed that you can't help but tell people how God's changed you. No matter what they may think of you. No matter what they may, how they may scoff at you. The Lord brings about transformative work because of the promise of the, of the cross, because of the fulfillment of the cross and the resurrection that we must tell people about it. So those five things are foundational as we begin to share ourselves and be witnesses ourselves of what Christ has come to do. Because again, they're not believing in your testimony of what Jesus did. They are believing in who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. That is the good news. That by by putting your trust and faith in him, you may be saved. Now Paul, being a good apologist, not only leads them through their history, but he now wants to do what I've already tried to do, and he wants to take them back and give them more proof, not just historical proof during Jesus' day, but he wants to take them now backwards to look at the promises that were made in the Old Testament and how they were kept in Jesus. And so we're going to look very quickly at just three of them. Firstly, he speaks from Psalm 2. This is the enthronement psalm. The enthronement psalm. If you look back in verse 32, he says, We preach to you the good news of the promises made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that He raised up Jesus. And now from this point forward, He's now going to verify, through the Old Testament, the proof that is needed to see that Jesus is, was promised as the risen Messiah. And the first quote is from Psalm 2. As I said, it's an enthronement psalm. I'm going to take us back to read Psalm 2, 6 through 9, so you can get a, a, a fuller picture. David writes, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is a psalm of David speaking for the Lord. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This psalm would be read at the uh, coronation uh, ceremonies. It was a, a, a port, an important reminder of the Davidic line that would find great comfort and power and strength in the Lord as they ruled over God's people. But as we see, through what we call progressive revelation, Paul helps us make the connection that Psalm 2 is not just about David, it's about Jesus. That Jesus would really be the one who would be given the nations as his inheritance, who would sit upon the throne, the holy mountain of Zion, who the very ends of the earth would be given as his possession, who would shatter his enemies with a rod of iron. This would be the one that would be pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, this promise of the Father to the Son, so that in John chapter 17... Jesus prays to the Father in this beautiful Trinitarian prayer between Father and Son, acknowledging that He has come to do all that the Father had set Him on His course to do. And in Matthew chapter 28, He reminds us, just as David prophesied in Psalm 2, that all authority on earth and heaven had been given to Jesus. Jesus. And so Paul points them back to Psalm 2 and secondly to Isaiah 55.3 where he talks about the sure promises and blessings of David would be given to God's people. Here he is referencing uh, Isaiah 55 verse 3 that these sure promises and blessings of David would be the very things in which God blesses His people The holy and sure promises or blessings for David would follow down the line through Jesus. But those promises, those holy and sure promises and blessings emanate from Jesus to all those who are in the church because we are what? In Jesus Christ. And we're actually going to talk about some of those blessings in just a minute. But thirdly, Psalm 16 is the third Old Testament passage. In Psalm 16, we know that the promises in Psalm 16 are initially filled in David. But as we look in one particular verse, we see that they, the, 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 the promise is made beyond David. If you look in verse 36, for David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and and underwent decay. That's an important point. David died, he was buried in the ground, and he began to corrode and see corruption. But Paul says in verse 37, But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Why is he saying this? Because in verse 35... He quotes Psalm 16, which was initially made to David, but then went beyond David to Jesus, when it says, you will not allow your Holy One to do what? Undergo decay. Now in that Psalm 16, there's one phrase that does not relate to to David, because he underwent decay. It looks forward to Jesus, the greater David, the greater king, the greater promised ruler... Greater than we can even imagine who David was as a leader of the people. Jesus is a better leader. He's a better ruler. And because he never saw decay, he was buried, and he rose victoriously from the grave, defeating death. And his resurrection is the very proof that God keeps his promises. And folks, these are just three Old Testament passages that point us To God's faithfulness as a promise keeper. You know how many passages in the Old Testament look forward to Jesus? Over 300. Over 300 passages are fulfilled in the life of Christ. That is an astronomical probability that is fulfilled. And you've probably heard this illustration before, but it would be the same as your ability to predict the future of an unexpected mother and predicting eight things about her unborn baby. Say, for instance, that you predicted very accurately the sex of the baby, the date of the birth, the name of the baby, the weight at the birth, the college, the occupation, the manner of death, and the age of death of that person. The chances of all eight of your predictions being fulfilled is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. I'm not even that smart to write that out. But someone has suggested that to illustrate the chances of all eight predictions of that expectant mother or even eight predictions being fulfilled in Jesus would be like you covering the state of Texas with two feet deep of silver dollars. And if you put an X on one of those silver dollars and you stirred up all of those coins and you send a blind man in and he reaches down and he picks up one coin, the probability that he picks up the coin with the X on it is is the same probability of Jesus having just eight prophecies fulfilled about him and coming true. And he had over 300. Now folks, God is not a God that asks you to believe blindly. We talk about faith being blind, but this is not blind faith. This is logical. This is reason. The medical community can attest to the reality of the crucifixion and what it would do. And witnesses can have have attested to the very fact that Jesus rose from the grave. So much so that not only did people who didn't follow Jesus attest to that, but His very disciples were willingly to give their life. Because they knew he rose from the grave. And so what Paul is doing in Acts chapter 13 is just laying upon them proof after proof. The historical proof. The prophetic proof. And then finally he wants them to see the practical blessings. And these are the holy and sure blessings for David that look forward to Christ. That are our practical blessings as people who trust in him. Now, I want you to be very, I want you to listen very closely. In verse 38, he writes, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Now, he's speaking to Jews. And he's telling them that freedom from sin, which, by the way, if your translation is like the New King James, you have a more accurate word there because the word is they are justified. You cannot be justified from the law of Moses or through the law of Moses, but you can be justified by believing in Jesus. And so I want us to, to, to believe or to understand at the very outset that so many people in churches today sit in the pews and call themselves Christians because they know the story of Jesus, but they don't believe in Jesus. He's not their Lord and Savior. He's not their Redeemer and, and, and King. He's simply a means to an end for a spiritual eternity. And that's not salvation That is what we call false conversion. You cannot just know the stories of the Bible and be saved. The Bible calls us to surrender all. Jesus told his disciples, if you want to be my disciples, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So please, let me... Let me beg and plead with you this afternoon that knowing the story of Jesus, knowing even those five points and going, yeah man, I think that happened. I think Jesus died. I think He was sinless. I think He died. I think He was buried. I think He rose again. And I think people saw Him rise again. It doesn't matter if you just know that. But to believe it is to, to understand that only Jesus Christ can save you. That He's your only hope that He's your only way of of salvation, that you yearn and long to to trust Him. And when you do, when you don't just know these things, but but they, they literally transform you, you will receive the practical blessings of redemption. If you believe, through everyone who believes, you receive these two things, and I'll be done. Number one, forgiveness. Let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. One way in which Jesus set himself apart from all other teachers in all of history in displaying his uh, uh, his knowledge and understanding of God. Well, other teachers could teach the knowledge and understanding of God. But Jesus set Himself apart when He told people to their face, Your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus looked at the woman, the sinning woman, at the house of the Pharisee as they sat, and, and she humbled herself and she wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. And she looked at, He looked at her and He said, Your sins are forgiven. And when Jesus uh, was in the crowded room and, and the friends lowered their paralytic friend down by the mat because they could not get to Jesus, he tells them, friends, your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. So much so that the Pharisees asked the question, who is this man that even forgives sins? This man is Jesus, church. The promised Messiah who gives life, gave his life to remove the guilt of stain and sin. This is the promise of God. God says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. This is the promise. When you trust in Christ, the blessings is that he will remember your sins no more. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. You receive the blessing of forgiveness of sins, not because God chooses to ignore your sin. He remembers your sin no more because they have been paid for. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus paid that debt. You know what's interesting? We we always hear of of the, the 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 analogy or the illustration about you know you go to uh you speed and you get a, a ticket, and and because you, you get this ticket, some the judge is going to uh call you to pay that you owe that debt. And we say, Well, Jesus comes in and he pays the debt for you, right? But the problem is with that illustration, is that you leave the courthouse and you still have to continue to obey the rules and the laws of the land. But Jesus, in His forgiveness, and as we get to His justification, He is perfect for us. So that when we leave the courtroom, we're not called to now obey and be perfect day by day so that we can uh, accumulate some form of legal standing before God. Jesus is perfect for us every day. Every day we rest in the justified work of Christ. In His righteousness, we've been given these things. So you cannot disconnect the truth of forgiveness and secondly, justification. Because you are justified, because you are made right legally before God, no longer guilty, you are justified in Christ. And as long as you are in Christ, which by the way is for all eternity, God will never call you guilty. Because Christ is perfect in His righteousness. And so one author defines righteousness or justification, excuse me, as God's gracious legal verdict in respect to those who believe in Christ, forgiving their sins and declaring them righteous through the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Imputation simply just means swap. You receive the righteousness of Christ's perfection and Christ takes upon Himself the sinfulness of your your sin. And the weight of your sin. And so these two blessings occur not for the whole world. Okay? This is where we get into the lessons of atonement. This is for those who believe. This is for those who surrender all to Christ. Trusting in Him fully, the very fabric of the Reformation. was solus Christus, in Christ alone, do we find salvation. Not in Christ and the Roman Catholic Church. Not in Christ and my good works. Not in Christ and my church attendance. In Christ alone will I receive the blessings of salvation because He has given this gift of grace to me. He alone is our source. And by faith then we come to Him. We repent of our sins and we trust and believe in Jesus alone. So as we conclude this today, we call ourselves to evaluation. I as your pastor and leader call you to evaluate your heart. Have you trusted in the risen Christ for your sin, for your salvation? Have you trusted that he has paid the penalty for your sin? Have you, have you been willing to turn from those things that dishonor Christ and by faith say, I surrender my life to you, what you call me to do, how you call me to live, by faith I come to you, trusting in you fully to be the source of my salvation? This was the message that Paul preached throughout the early church lands. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, he testified to Jews and Greeks, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, I hope that you have trusted in him. I hope that you understand these pillars of the gospel as Paul described and have believed in him. I hope you find confidence if you're a believer in Jesus that God is a faithful promise keeper and that you worship Him as such. Let's pray. Father, we pray now...